Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This past fall, as many of you, the listeners, will remember, the Jewish community celebrated the most holy of days, the most introspective of days, Rosh Hashanah, the spiritual head of the new year, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement in which members of the Jewish community fast and spend um, the day and the evening before in synagogue with some uh, intentionality at looking at their behavior, their behavior towards the deity and their behavior towards their uh, co-inhabitants of the earth and reflecting on whether and how their behavior could change. The sermons that rabbis deliver during these holy days are often considered the most important sermons of the year, not only because they have the largest congregation um, in attendance when they speak, but they often set the tone for the synagogue year and the um, vision that the rabbi has um, for direction that the synagogue will take in the coming year. With me this morning is Rabbi Eitan Kentner of uh, Kehilat uh, Beth Israel Congregation in Ottawa, the largest congregation in Ottawa. Rabbi Kentner spoke this year at High Holidays on a number of topics. What One of the topics he um, spoke about was the nature of the conservative movement, that branch of Judaism, which easily is defined as the middle ground. Perhaps he'll not like that definition, and we'll talk about it, but if orthodoxy is, quote, the most traditional and reform the least traditional, on the spectrum, conservative Judaism is in the middle. And Rabbi Kempner introduced his congregation to a number of thoughts about um, conservative Judaism as a movement, and, and then introduced the notion that he would be teaching um, this fall a number of courses on uh, the question of what is conservative Judaism. He would teach one during the day for those available during the day and one in the evening for those most uh, easily accessible to evening classes. And so I've invited him to join me this morning to talk about uh, conservative Judaism. Rabbi Kentner is a native of New York, as are many rabbis, myself included, and most recently served congregation in Atlanta, Georgia. Rabbi Kentner writes that he has recently taken to Ottawa, but not nearly as much as his wife Stacy and his son Boaz. So, Rabbi Kentner, it's not yet winter, so I welcome you to Ottawa. Um, it won't be your first winter here, but uh, we hope it's not your last. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> as long as... Uh I, I'm coming from New York. It's not so unfamiliar. That's good. That Atlanta yeah. did not thin your blood. No. Good. <laughs> so as you heard on my introduction, I do believe that um, 
you spoke eloquently this year about um, your sense of conservative Judaism mm-hmm. and thought that it was time in your tenure as rabbi of Kehillat mm-hmm. Beth Israel to chat about it. So let's begin mm-hmm. by um, you telling us a bit about um, your understanding of the origins of conservative Judaism, um, and we'll move on from there. Okay. Um, so I want to share in two contexts um, the potential origin story of concerted Judaism and how it uh, relates to the larger Jewish story uh, as far as I see it. Uh, first of all, within the larger, more, um, you know, multi-thousand-year history of Judaism, uh, my understanding is that there is a certain period in our story that each of the major movements within Judaism, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox, uh, are most aligned with a certain period in the story. Uh, so that Reform Jews are prophetic Jews who look back to the stories of the prophets, teaching us to be the best versions of ourselves, inspiring us to live ethical and meaningful lives. Uh, conservative Jews go back to the rabbinic period, which is how do you create an evolutionary um, process for the continuation of uh, Judaism while maintaining the core values that are, make Judaism what it is, while at the same time acknowledging changing realities, uh, when orthodoxy would be uh, in the realm of modernity where there was access to uh, books following the printing press, and that the idea being that there are fixed and standard practices that are uh, to be observed um, throughout the Jewish story. So one piece of the origin story for concerted Judaism is the rabbinic period where uh, the rabbis took the teachings of the Bible, they took the teachings of the Torah, and were able to find ways to make it meaningful and relevant um, into a new period in our story. The other piece of it is that Reform, uh, Conservative, and Orthodox are products of modernity, and that once uh, Napoleon and once the, uh, the Jews were able to become citizens of France, uh, there became a question of once you can become citizens, do you fully embrace the access that is allowed uh, to us now that we can enter into society in a full way? Do we uh, hide ourselves away for fear of being lost and assimilated into the larger society? And concerted Judaism represented the attempt to acknowledge that we have to become part of the larger world, but at the same time, how can we do so in a way that maintains an integrity to the uh, Jewish tradition that we've inherited? So I want to um, interrupt for just time. a moment yeah, to, for the listeners who may not be quite as familiar with the history mm-hmm. as others. Yeah. Um, prior to the Napoleonic era, in the um, 18th century, um, Jews in Europe, uh, both Western and Eastern Europe, were not considered citizens of the land in which they lived. And they had no civil rights. Um, and in fact, there was institutionalized discrimination against the Jewish population, sometimes leading to violence, sometimes not, certainly uh, limiting their access to educational opportunities, economic opportunities, And Napoleon was the first who uh, 
through a changing nature of the term citizenship, asked Jews whether they could be citizens of France um, and have loyalty to the country of France and still remain Jewish. Um, mm-hmm. As Rabbi Kentner suggested, this was a uh, transformative moment in which Jews were um, left with a question. Um, could I be French and practice my uh, faith the way I understood it? Or would I need to give up my faith in order to have the fullest expression of my uh, French citizenship, which then eventually, of course, became a question not only in France, but in Italy and England and Germany Mm -hmm. and all of um, Western Europe, leading, of course, to uh, Canada and the New World. Um, Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to make that clear to our uh, listeners what the tension was that conservative reform and even modern orthodoxy were responding to. Mm -hmm. Good. Thank you. Um, So if you'll continue with your story. Okay. And so the, the early, um, I would say proto leaders of the conservative movement were largely in the reformers camp, but then the choices being made within the, uh, reform tent, uh, in certain cases, uh, made the right flank of that group uncomfortable. Uh, so Zacharias Frankel, who was, um, probably the, the intellectual founder of the ideology that would become conservative Judaism, uh, was at a conference with the, his fellow leaders of, uh, the reform approach, uh, in Germany. And uh, when certain choices were being made, specifically in his case, uh, moving prayer from Hebrew to the vernacular, uh, he left the conference and felt the need to articulate his view on how changes in Judaism can and should work. Uh, and then there was a similar moment of parting in North America, where uh, Hebrew Union College had been established in Cincinnati, and uh, to celebrate the first ordination... Uh, there was a large banquet in honor of the graduating class, and that event is referred to as the Great Trefa Banquet, uh, which was a uh, meal that was designed to uh, violate as many rules of uh, the dietary laws as possible. Um, and so uh, in an intentional effort by the people on the left to say that this is our institution um, and not yours, so the people on the right felt the need that they needed to establish their own institution, which eventually leads to the establishment of the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. Um, which is that, the rabbinical school and educational center yeah. of the conservative movement. So mm-hmm. we had um, Hebrew Union College, which became the, um, in the mid uh, and late 1800s, became mm-hmm. the spiritual center of North American Reform Judaism and mm-hmm. adopted um, European reform practices to the mm-hmm. North American and primarily United States shores. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, after the infamous banquet, um, member more traditional members of the Jew, North American Jewish community felt that they were no longer welcomed 
in um, what had been presented as the large tent of North America, and they uh, led to the establishment of the Jewish Theological Seminary, which would carve out a uh, swatch of Jewish philosophy and practice um, in distinction to that which was happening in Cincinnati. Yes, I think Mm -hmm. that would be fair. Um, And how do you understand what their philosophical underpinning was at that moment? So I think one of the challenges that I think all movements have within Judaism is that all of them think that they are just doing Judaism and not a particular branch of Judaism. Uh, And so uh, first and foremost, the founders of that institution didn't think they were starting something new. They thought they were just doing what Judaism always was as far as they were concerned and kind of even for many years shied away from expressing any sense of particularism or (laughs) any sense of separation of their ideology as a particular approach to Judaism rather than it being a more universal understanding as far as they were uh, concerned. Uh, But I think in many ways the struggle of the conservative movement can be uh, crystallized in the idea of polarities and balance, which is that how do you uh, live in the tension of modernity uh, while at the same time valuing our traditions? How do we navigate uh, the our North American selves concurrent with our Jewish selves when those parts of ourselves can be in tension with each other? Uh, how do we make sure that we continue on the tradition that we've inherited, but doing so in a way that will speak to the unique needs of the future generations? And so that tension of trying to navigate those polarities and balance, I think, is the underlying challenge and task of what conservative Judaism uh, attempts to accomplish. And um, for our listeners who are not quite as aware of the history, perhaps Mm -hmm. you could identify some in the early years. What were some Mm -hmm. of the specifics that the founders of um, the conservative perspective felt that they need to respond to? Some some of the issues in North Mm -hmm. America. We'll get to later issues, perhaps, um, towards the end of our conversation. Um, So... For example, uh, so while the need to preserve the Jewish dietary laws um, was certainly part of what uh, caused the separation from Hebrew Union College in the 1880s, at the same time, the conservative movement's requirement for men and women to be sitting together is what kept them apart from the more orthodox uh, streams in the 1920s that there had been conversations about a merger of the Jewish Theological Seminary um, and the Orthodox Rabbinical School um, in Washington Heights in uh, in New York. And uh, the two issues that stood in the way were, one, uh, mixed seating with men and women sitting together rather than with an orthodoxy that men and women needed to sit separately, and the issue of agunot, or chained women, of how do we navigate the situation of women who are who are married to a man, and when that, in Judaism, for a divorce to take place, a man needs to authorize the writing of a divorce decree. Um, And if the man doesn't authorize the writing of that decree, the woman is chained um, into her marriage, so can no longer marry anybody else. Uh, Under Jewish law. What? I just want to clarify for the listeners that the question of Agunah, the chained woman, 
is um, really an imperative for those people who live under Jewish law. Jews mm-hmm. living in Canada today who wish to be divorced um, are able to attain a divorce under the Family Law Act of Ontario or any province that they live in. Mm-hmm. But there is, in the historical development of our people, um, Jewish marriage and Jewish divorce. Mm-hmm. And Jewish mm-hmm. divorce is seen in the same way as we would say civil divorces as a legal document. And under Jewish law, um, the man must, um, um, under extreme, under traditional Jewish law, the man must agree to the divorce. I think that would be the fair way to say it. Yeah, to, to initiate the divorce. Correct. And, and if the man does not, then the woman by Jewish law is bound to her husband, even if in today's mm-hmm. society she had a civil divorce. That mm-hmm. would mean, the upshot of that would mean that uh, under Jewish law, she couldn't remarry in an orthodox tradition. And so you're yes, suggesting and, conservative Judaism. In conservative Judaism, they were, they were finding mechanisms to avoid that particular situation. Even um, in the earliest so, days. Um, so it was the early stages of the, uh, the question of how can we create an environment that, is, that uh, requires uh, gender equality. And by the 1920s, they were not yet at the point that we've gotten to today, but I think that that was an example of an area that we were trying to straddle the balance, that we were too traditional for the reformers, but we weren't traditional enough for the Orthodox. And and perhaps for the listeners, you could offer um, an insight into how the early founders of conservative Judaism determined where to... Um, insert themselves in the question of modernity. Mm -hmm. I mean, why Mm -hmm. um, issues of aguna, why issues Mm -hmm. of gender equity, why issues of kashrut, Mm -hmm. uh, which you alluded to, um, and there were even in the earliest times, as I understand it, some um, conversations about um, um, English, since we're talking about North mm-hmm. America, as part of the service, or at least yep. uh, a translation of the Siddur, why mm-hmm. those areas um, were thought to be um, important demarcations between um, a new perspective, or as you suggested, an older perspective now in a new bottle, um, mm-hmm. and uh, orthodoxy. Yeah, so I think that there are a couple of differences. One is that I think that for me, denominational affiliation is not about practice, but about the reasons for those practices. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, so that it's not just what you do, but why you do the things that you do. So that a Reformed person, a conservative person, an Orthodox person could all um, decide that they wanted to observe the Jewish dietary laws, but they would all likely be doing it for different reasons. Good. That, that's, um, a, that's a helpful distinction for our listeners, uh, as well as for most Jews, I think. But, mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, for me, the first and foremost, the distinction is about not what we do, but why we do it. And I think that that is certainly a component there. And I think that in the way that the conservative movement is trying to be inheritors of the rabbis, the idea is that we have this tradition that we've inherited, the the Torah, that the the, the rules that have been passed down through the generations that we feel a responsibility to perpetuate and continue. Uh, 
but at the same time, sometimes we have information now that rabbis before us didn't have. Sometimes there are sensibilities within our society that have changed that are no longer the case. So to go back to the question of uh, the role of women within Judaism, to think that rabbis in the 6th century would have the same ideology on that particular question as rabbis in the 21st century, given the nature of the societies in which we lived, um, is unreasonable. And so part of the idea is in the same way that those rabbis in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries realized there are ways that Judaism needed to change to acknowledge the changing reality of their world, so too is it it is no different in the 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st centuries to have to do the same thing. But it has to be done through the lens of Jewish law, it has to be done through the lens of our tradition. So it can't just be a change because we want it to change, but it has to be a change that we can actualize using the rabbinic process that has been in place for a thousand years. So staying with that um, Mm -hmm. notion of change, um, Mm -hmm. one of the earliest changes, as I understand it, um, Mm -hmm. is that um, conservative Judaism saw the possibility um, of maintaining its um, roots in rabbinic Judaism and having men and women sit together. But, Mm -hmm. But there came a time when conservative Judaism, after lengthy conversation and some Uh um, strong dialogue, decided that women could be rabbis and cantors. Uh Um, And perhaps you could help the listeners understand that, that that transformation, because for the longest time, there were no women rabbis and cantors Uh in Canada. None of the congregations associated with the conservative movement um, assented to that change. Uh Um, Now, I know at your congregation, you do have um, a young woman who is ordained a rabbi. Uh Um, And so... um, um, I don't know whether she was the first or the only um, mm-hmm. conservative rabbi in Canada, um, certainly in mm-hmm. Ontario. Um, so what motivated the movement um, to make that change, which seems so at odds with tradition? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so in terms of the question of the role of women in Jewish law, um, the unique challenge that the conservative movement has is that, on the one hand, you could have people on the right who say this isn't the way it has been uh, for thousands of years, and therefore it cannot be that way any longer. You have people on the left who have a moral imperative to change their perspective and therefore are um, inspired by that moral imperative to make that change regardless of what had been done before. The unique challenge of the conservative movement is straddling again in the middle there uh, and trying to figure out a way to make it work. And so there were a number of uh, pieces to that particular decision. I'm a believer that where there's a will, there's a Jewish legal way. Uh, so the first thing has to be that you know, there has to be a desire from the rabbi or the rabbinic community or the movement for change to take place, or else the change can't happen in the first place. So first and foremost, there were calls coming out of the 60s and the 70s for equal opportunity and equal rights for women, not only in Jewish life, but in life writ large. And so women were inspired by uh, the calls for equal pay for equal work and other opportunities that were being uh, demanded uh, within the larger society to also penetrate into their Judaism as well. And so these... uh, So within Judaism, there then became the will to want to find a way 
to allow for women's participation in Jewish life in a fuller way, but there needed to be a way to find that within our tradition. So, so in, uh, the question, in opposition to yeah. the reform, which mm-hmm. um, simply said that society is calling for equal mm-hmm. opportunities, we yep. should provide women equal opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so in yep. 1972, they ordained the first mm-hmm. reform rabbi in North America, woman rabbi in North America, yep. Sally Presand. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's what... 45 years ago, 1972, yeah, yeah, 45 years ago, they ordained her. The conservative movement took um, a longer period of time to figure yeah. out the tension between the um, prevailing ethic of, of general society and how mm-hmm. to do that in the context of a more traditional perspective of Judaism, yes? Yes, and so the question was, for example... Uh, that women are not bound, according to traditional Jewish law, to time-bound commands uh, because uh, of the acknowledgement that very often they would have other requirements that would preclude their ability to do things at a particular time. Uh, and so if someone doesn't have the same obligation as someone else, you are not allowed to fulfill that obligation for that person. Correct. And so how do we navigate um, having a woman be a prayer leader if she's not obligated to do the service of the particular time. And so there were a number of responses that were written, which were pieces by rabbis taking the words of our tradition and understanding them in a way that made it more permissive than it had been in the past. Uh, for me, it in that particular case, it's tied to the idea that uh, now that everyone has their own prayer book, no one can fulfill anyone else's obligation anyway, because everyone can read the prayer book for themselves, and therefore it doesn't matter whether two people have the same level of obligation or, or not. not, because it is no one is fulfilling anyone else's obligation, and therefore um, it opened the door for possibilities that hadn't been possible before, so that by the mid-1980s, the first women were being ordained as part of the conservative So... I want to thank you for that. Um, I hope it gives the listeners a sense of the process the conservative movement um, has used in the past. And in the little bit of time that's remaining Mm -hmm. to us for this conversation, I want to revert to where I began. And that is, Mm -hmm. why did you think now was the time to um, introduce courses in conservative Judaism to your congregation, Kehilat Beth Israel? Mm -hmm. Uh, what I would say is I don't think this is unique to conservative Judaism or even Judaism. I think many people within their religious lives, unless specifically called otherwise, uh, kind of default to the factory settings, where we join a synagogue of a particular persuasion because it's a synagogue we've always gone to, or because it's a type of synagogue that I grew up in, uh, rather than having any real understanding of what does it mean to be affiliated with one particular Jewish denomination versus another. And so for me, if I'm trying to express and advocate and have people be uh, passionate for what it is that their congregation can provide, it's important for them to be aware of what are the unique facets, what are the unique features of what conservative Judaism brings, and that they understand that and be a part of it because it's what they wish to be a part of, not just because it's what they've always done, uh, um, is one part of it. I'm, um, I'm and, cognizant yeah. of that our time is running out, yeah. and as often happens, yeah. there's so much more to 
um, chat about. Um, you know, the conservative movement used to be the largest movement in North America. It no longer holds that title. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many, many pressing issues that the conservative movement is wrestling with um, in the modern sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish you good luck in, in your Thank teaching. You. I hope that the members of the congregation can uh, respond to your erudition and to your insight. I want to thank you for sharing some thoughts with our audience this morning. Uh, members of your congregation can find the interview on uh, the CHRI website. It'll be entitled Conservative Judaism and probably will be played um, this coming Sunday in um, October. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. I want to thank our guest, Rabbi Aten Kentner, for sharing with us and wish all of you a good day and shalom. Shalom.